This is the second time I've spoken in this building. Is that right? First time they had a chair for me because I just had open heart surgery a few weeks before and then flown in. So they offered the chair and I took it. <laughs> More people have seen that DVD than any series of sermons I've ever preached. Everybody thinks I now speak from a chair. And it was on offer again. And I said, no, I'm not going to let that get out. And I've got other things wrong, but uh, my heart's fine. In fact, my cardiologist said, RT, when you leave this world, it won't be your heart. Said I would live to my 90s. So, Ernie, just I'm going to get to where you are. So I'm standing to prove a point. Oh, hold on. <laughs> Michael and I preached together a uh, week before last in Johannesburg and uh, Cape Town. And uh, he's heard all my sermons. I've heard all of his. You know, Michael, I just want to say, you keep on. You've got a future. I think God's got a plan for your life that uh, you might just one day develop into a, a right good uh, theologian speaker. Uh, oh. Michael is my greatest encourager, and I am his greatest supporter. And it's an honor to be with him again and to be with you. Be with Ant and, and Nick, where are you? Uh, because of Nick Davis, I have a ministry in South Africa that uh, is going strong, but it's wonderful to be back in Britain. When I come to Heathrow, I feel like I'm coming home, and uh, I left part of me here, and uh, actually, I really do mean this. This is where my heart is, to be in Britain. 25 years at Westminster, three years uh, at Oxford, and uh, Louise would love to be here, uh, maybe next time, but we both feel the same way. We love you. Our, our greatest friends are, are British, and uh, didn't know how British we were until we moved to America, and, uh, and uh, we haven't fully settled in, so, but thank you for having me. Here's the plan. Uh, I'm speaking on James. Um, actually, we had two years in James back in 1979 and 80, or was it 80, 81? And, uh, but I've had to be selective for today. This morning, I'll preach on joy. Uh, then Michael comes, and then I preach on wisdom, and then we'll wrap up things tonight dealing with faith, and the very, not a difficult verse when you understand it, but controversial verse, verse hard verse, James 2.14, uh, can faith save him, uh, faith in works. So that's the plan, plan for the day. All right, would you open your Bibles, please, to the book of James, chapter 1. James, chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy. The NIV says, count it pure joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, go down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the teaching of this his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. 
Heavenly Father, I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to be upon every mind, that their perception of what is said will be as you intend. And upon my tongue that I'll be cleansed, that I might be your transparent instrument. Say everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. May this be a word that will be life-changing and bring great honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. We look now at this verse, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. The Greek literally says fall into trials of many kinds. Uh, just take a minute to introduce this book. Uh, it is a glimpse of what I would call underdeveloped Christianity. Uh, almost certainly the earliest ever written of the books in the canon. Uh, as late as 48 A.D. and as early as 40 A.D. And uh, probably written before James knew the implications of the Apostle Paul's teaching. Uh, so what we have in James is what I would call pre-Pauline Christianity. Uh, and yet, as we will see at the close of tonight, it perfectly coheres with Paul. Uh, we're dealing with a very practical epistle, shows us how to grow as Christians. Now, you may know it has had a controversial history. It was slow to get canonical status. Uh, for one thing, they weren't sure which James was meant, because there are five Jameses in the New Testament. Uh, it is a very Jewish epistle, uh, and it seemed dated and not useful in the light of Paul's teaching and uh, the way Gentile Christianity was growing. Um, and then by the time you get to Luther's day, Martin Luther, in 1544, just two or three years before he died, he says, uh, we should not teach that here. We should throw this book out. Uh, it doesn't amount to much. It is an epistle of straw. Luther was too defensive for his own rediscovery of justification by faith alone, and he felt that James threatened his teaching. Luther was wrong, but that's what he felt. But then you come to a later Lutheran, Soren Kierkegaard, regarded James as his favorite book. And I'm told that James is the favorite book in third world Christianity. Well, James might have said some things differently 10 or 15 years later, but he didn't need to. Uh, readers of James, readers of Paul would take years before they really discovered each other. Uh, what would take a hundred years in the first century now takes seconds. Uh, I don't know whether this talk today will be on the internet, but if it is, you know, people can hear it all over the world in a very short period of time. But in those days, it was very slow uh, for people to embrace both James and Paul. Well, as to which James... I will come right to the point. We're talking about the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, and this James, you should know, was the most powerful man in the early church. Saul of Tarsus, who became the apostle Paul, was a nobody. And, but James was the big gun. Uh, and all he had to do is just call himself James uh, in his... Uh, uh, epistle doesn't say half-brother of Jesus. Uh, he simply says, James, servant of God, uh, and was equal to Peter in status. And as I said, his name meant everything. To get James's endorsement uh, was like having Martin Lloyd-Jones today. You cannot underestimate the appeal, the stature of James. Well, now, I want to look at this verse, count it pure joy. And uh, if we have time, uh, I would like to deal with four levels of joy. And the first level I would simply call joy by faith. Now, the reason I put it that way is because James is addressing 
although to all the tribes scattered abroad, he's speaking out of the Jerusalem church situation. There's no doubt about that. And he is addressing Jews who were very, very discouraged. Nothing had gone right for them. They thought that Judaism was the wave of the future. Uh, what became known later as being a Christian, they were just called followers of the way at that stage, but they felt they were the wave of the future. After all, day of Pentecost, 3,000 people converted. <laughs> it's looking pretty good. But then most of those that were converted on the day of Pentecost were from all over the Mediterranean, and they go back to their homes. That just leaves a handful. Uh, but then they did get that shot in the arm when Peter and John healed the man at the gate beautiful, and now we've got thousands converted, and by then it does look like uh, Jewish Christianity would be the wave of the future. But you know, that didn't happen. It just didn't take off. Uh, the temple worship was thriving, people going back into the temple. You say, what happened to the veil of the temple that was red in two from top to bottom? Well, somebody sewed it up a day or two later or got a new one. There was no hint, no hint at all that these followers of Jesus claiming that he was the Messiah uh, were the wave of the future. Anything but. And so the relatives of these Jews who had professed faith in Jesus laughed at them, scoffed at them. And what they longed for was vindication, prove that they had got it right. Uh, and if only somehow they could have some kind of external evidence that they had got it right. Uh, the veil of the temple, as I say, was right there. The temple was standing. Uh, no evidence that one stone would not be left on another, that the, the temple would fall. It was doing fine. If Ichabod was written over the temple, nobody thought it. Uh, the glory did not seem to have departed, and those who did not profess faith in Christ, they were not struck dead. Ananias and Sapphira were, which proves to me that they were truly converted. A lot of people think they were false professors. Don't think so at all. They were part of the number. They believed, and they let the devil get in. And so the way to get struck dead is to be a true believer. Those who hadn't professed faith in Christ, uh, they were thriving. Now, what these Jews thought was if we could just have some evidence that we've got it right. They thought they would grow by getting more prestigious people in. That's why you have in verse 1 of chapter 2, if a man wearing a gold ring comes into your assembly, uh, why did they think like that? Well, there was a, a feeling among the Jews if you had wealthy people come into your church, shows that maybe they weren't so bad, prestigious people, well-to-do. Uh, a lot of churches think that today. Uh, we need to get upmarket people so that the world will see the kind of people that come to our church. And uh, the point is, that wasn't happening. James was addressing a discouraged lot. Vindication withheld. They were in trouble. They were quarreling with each other. Uh, nothing was going right. And what is his opening comment to them? He says, count it all joy. Count it pure joy. Now, just a brief word to say what it is not, this pure joy. Uh, he's not talking about your natural temperament. Some people, by nature, are sanguine. Uh, Socrates, 700 B.C., said there are four kinds of temperament, choleric sanguine, melancholy, phlegmatic, and those who have a sanguine temperament, they're smiling all the time, patting everybody on the back, cheer up, and, and uh, you know, when you're feeling low and you run into a sanguine person, it makes you want to go out and shoot somebody. You know? <laughs> they are just like that, but it's not the Holy Spirit. That's just the way they are. And so neither are we talking about happiness, Count it that you are happy. Uh, happiness is something that comes from without. It just happens. Uh, 
tell you something you may not know. The word happiness really comes from a Greek word that means luck. Uh, being lucky, you know, that's not a bad thing. Uh, evangelicals use the word lucky. Uh, you know, the, the, the world has stolen that word. It's, it's really a, a biblical word. But the way to get away with it, you know, if you're with pious, sound people, you can refer to providential stroke of luck. That would probably be okay. But in any case, he's not talking about happiness, something that happens to you. He's talking about something internal. Jesus said, receive my joy. Even though he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, he was a man full of joy. So we're talking about something spiritual. Uh, And so when I say joy by faith, this is the way he put it. He says, count it all joy. Consider it. uh, Regard it. Uh, You might like to know that when he uses the word count, it's the same exact word used by the Apostle Paul in Romans 4. Uh, When we talk about imputed righteousness, righteousness put to one's credit. In Romans chapter 4, Paul puts it like this in verse 5. He says, uh, to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. All right. Uh, that means that you see it that way because God sees it that way. You can now regard yourself as righteous, not because you feel righteous, not because you've got a halo over your head, but because God says you are. Uh, the origin of this goes back to Abraham, who was Paul's number one example of justification by faith. Uh, in Genesis 15, you have the occasion when Abraham was obviously very discouraged. Eliezer, his servant, uh, was going to be the only person that could inherit Abraham's wealth. Abraham and Sarah were wealthy. They were filthy, rich. They had everything. And Abraham was discouraged. He says, Lord, what am I going to do? Do I just give everything to my servant? And one night on a clear evening, God said to Abraham, go outside your tent and look up. Clear night. God says, Abraham, count the stars. Go on, count them. He tries to count them. Start all over. One, two, three. Says, Lord, I, I, I can't count them. And God says, so will your seed be. Now, Abraham might have said, don't tease me. Don't joke with me. Sarah's getting older. I'm getting older. We don't have any children. And you're now wanting me to believe that my seed will be like the stars of the heavens, countless. And God says, that's exactly what I'm saying to you. Abraham might have said, sorry, Lord, I don't believe it. You know what? He believed it. He believed it. And God says, good. For that, I count you righteous. From that moment, Abraham was seen as righteous in God's eyes. There was nothing externally about Abraham that would be righteous. He had been a sun worshiper. He was nothing. But now God says, you're righteous. Okay, Paul uses the same word. He who justifies the ungodly. If he believes, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so we say to the lost, your friends might not think you're righteous. They say, you, righteous? Mm-hmm. How can you say it? Because God says it. Because we believe his word. All right, that's, that's the, the word, count, impute, regard as, consider. James is using that same word now. And he says, you who are discouraged, I want you to realize that though you have no vindication, there's no external evidence that you've got it right, 
and you are feeling the worst that you've ever felt in your life, James says, count it pure joy. What out. <laughs> Please choose to say, don't tease us. Don't joke with us. This is, this is not funny. What we're going through. This is, this is the worst time of our lives. About three years ago, I was working on this sermon that you're hearing right now, coming up with all these points. And uh, a lady called me from Florida. We now live in Tennessee, by the way. We live in Tennessee. But a lady called me from Florida. Her husband's a member of my board. And uh, she had been diagnosed with, with cancer, breast cancer, and she had gone through chemotherapy, had no medical insurance, and she's in immense pain. So she calls me and she says, what are you doing? And I said, well, uh, I'm working on a sermon called Count It Pure Joy When You Fall Into All Kinds of Trials. And I began to give her all the points of this sermon you're about to hear. You know what she said to me? She said, I'm so glad I phoned. That is exactly what I needed. I was so afraid she'd say, oh, I, 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 I don't want to hear that. But the opposite. And she said, you have given me more hope. And I'm telling you that for this reason. Could it be that there's someone here right now, if we were to examine you and talk to you, you would say, as I speak, you're in the greatest trial of your whole life. Won't ask for a show of hands for anything like this. But I wonder, is there someone here today, right now, you are in the middle of the greatest trial of your life? So James's words, count it all joy. It's joy by faith. Faith. You don't have the evidence. You see, what makes faith faith is that you believe that you don't have evidence. You just believe it. You just believe the sheer word of God. You know, I, I could make a little case that, that Louise and I are going through the greatest trial. I've got some things wrong with me. I've got a shoulder here. I can't lift up my right hand. I've developed a problem with dizziness about three years ago. Uh, you don't know it, Michael, but when we were going down the lift today, I had to lean back against the wall. I thought I was going to fall. And it happens when I preach. You wouldn't know it. I just keep on. And uh, then on the 12th of January, Louise, uh, lifting up in a supermarket, coming to, the, to check out the groceries, she bent over to lift up 18 pounds of cat food. And something makes me love cats uh, <laughs> happened to her lower back, and it got worse that day. And she's been virtually housebound for three months. Greatest trial of her life. And in it together, I, and, and I feel horrible even being here right now. But she's able now to cope alone. She said, "I must come." So I'm preaching to myself. So don't don't think that I'm up on a pedestal moralizing anybody here. Joy by faith. You see, when things go your well, your way, then God is pleasing you. But when things are not going your way and you impute joy to it, you are pleasing God. And if there's anyone here you've wanted, how can I please the Lord? I would just love to know I'm pleasing him. I'll tell you. I'll tell you right now. If you're in a trial and you're prepared to say, I impute to this trial pure joy. Not because I feel it, but because God says it. I'm going to count up pure joy. And then when the trial is over, you get a report card in heaven. Pass or fail. And I have to tell you, when I came across this during my days in Westminster, I felt so ashamed. 
I realized that all my life, every time I had a trial, I just complained the whole did everything I could to get it over with. That when it was over, it was over. I was no better. I was like the predestinarian who fell down the stairs. He mopped his brow and he says, well, I'm glad that's over. That was the way I felt. Every time I t- took a minute there. Tell him, tell Aunt Theria, sit slow. Every time I'd have a trial, I just want to get it over with. And in heaven, the angels nodded their heads. Our two failed again. There came a time in my life when I had a wake-up call. And I realized every trial I ever had was an invitation from the Holy Spirit to please the Lord. And the way you please Him is impute to it joy. For one thing, that's the way you will eventually see it. I can tell you now, whatever you're in, the day will come that this too will work together for good so perfectly that you're going to be tempted to say that was the way it was supposed to be, which is not necessarily the case. The fact that something works together for good doesn't mean it was right at the time. But you will eventually say, yes, there was a purpose in it. God was the architect of the whole thing. You will eventually see that. See it now. Don't wait for it to work together for good and then say, oh, it was good. Now, you you didn't get the blessing that way. You get the blessing when there's no evidence that this is joy, that you impute to it joy. Well, the question is then, how do you show faith in a trial? First, welcome it. First step. Okay, you're in a trial. Maybe it's been going on for weeks, maybe longer. Or maybe it came yesterday. And you say, well, you know, I didn't welcome it. Okay, well, then do it now. Start right now. Lord, I'm sorry. I didn't welcome it, but I do now. I do now. One of my favorite hymns in the days when we used to sing hymns, Like a River Glorious, there's that line, Every joy or trial cometh from above. And so that's the first thing. Welcome it. Welcome it. Second, don't panic. Remember that God allowed it. And you figure that if God allowed it, there must be a reason for it. Third, see it as a compliment from God. You see, in verse 12 of James chapter 1, he says, Blessed is the man who's in trial and remains steadfast under trial. Blessed. You may feel that you're unlucky that this could happen to you. You need to understand something. That if you are in a real trial today, let's suppose, let's suppose that uh, we could interview everybody here. And you've heard my story. I've got these little physical problems. And I hear your story. I would blush to think that I was in any trial at all. Some of you have gone through far greater trials. You've been lied about. Maybe you were abused as a child. Maybe you were raped. Maybe there's been financial reverse. Maybe you've been betrayed. And you're right in it now. And suppose we hear everybody's story. And we just have a vote to see who here has suffered more than anybody else. And it's you. 
the angels have a word for you. If you're in the greatest crowd, you're like, the angels have a word. Congratulations. Congratulations. Kind of pure joy. You see, this is the way forward for a greater anointing than you've ever had in your life. Those who are here from West Central Chapel know me well. You can put me under a lie detector. You know what I want more than anything in the world? I, I'm not even sure it's a spiritual request. You may think it's spiritual. I'm not sure it is. Because I want it so bad. I can't tell the difference between the natural and the spiritual. I want a greater anointing than anything. Well, the greater the suffering, the greater the anointing. And if in my old age, God's going to give me a greater anointing. And he lets these things happen to Louise and me, these little nuisances. I think, Lord, come on. It's okay. God says, congratulations. You wanted a greater anointing? I think, well, Lord, I didn't kind of want it this way. I, I would rather have somebody lay hands on me and I just fall to the floor and look like a fool. I, I can live with that. And no, he says, I want you to endure what you're going through. And so to anybody here, you're in your greatest trial. Congratulations. Fourth, know that there is purpose in it. Purpose in it. Now, let me give you two world views. You could say polar opposites. Theodicy, existentialism. What's the difference? Theodicy. The governing ways of God in the earth. We believe that God is in control. There's purpose in the universe. That everything going on in the universe is moving toward an omega point. One day God will clear his name. The most maligned person of the Trinity is God the Father. And the cynic says God's got a lot to answer for. Why does he allow evil? Why does he allow suffering? How many of you have said, God, why did you let this happen to me? But if you hold to a theodicy, there's purpose in it. You're not required to know what the purpose is, but you just know that there is. And that one day, when every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess, God will clear his name. And when he does, we'll all say, why didn't I think of that? But he's hid it from you now. And one of the reasons God allows suffering is that you might truly believe. You might have faith. What makes faith, faith? Is that you trust him and you don't have the answer. If you've got the answer, and then you trust him, it's not faith anymore. You see, the cynics at the crucifixion, chief priests, the soldiers said, come down from the cross so that we can see and believe. See and believe. That's the worldly way. You see it, now you believe it. But it is not dignified with the title faith in that case. Every eye shall see him at the second coming. And they'll all believe then. Won't be called faith then. What makes faith, faith? You don't know why. But you say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Theodicy. Polar opposite, existentialism. You're thrown into your existence. I think the Germans use the word Dasein, thrown. You're just there. You don't know why. You never will know why. There's no purpose in it. You're in a trial. Don't, don't expect to understand. There's no purpose in it at all. That's what the existentialist says. They call it, life is absurd. Jean-Paul Sartre taught that until some of his students started to commit suicide. And then he climbed down a little bit. He said, well, I didn't mean for you to commit suicide. But that's the logical conclusion. If there's no purpose in life, existentialism. But because we believe in a God who's sovereign, 
all-powerful, all-wise, knows the end from the beginning. He lets things happen to see if you still love him, still believe him. And he gives you a word, and you say, I don't know how I can believe that. Abraham did, and God called him righteous. And so today you can be Abraham all over again. Not that you need to be justified all over again, but you're in a trial now. Count it pure joy. You welcome it. You don't panic. See it as a compliment from God. Know that there's a purpose in it. And fifth, don't try to end it. See, this is the mistake we make. <laughs> we want to get it over with. We're busybodies trying to sort this out, make it work together for good. See, Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. It's not your job to make happen. You don't have to make it work together for good. That's God's problem. Let him do it. And so, when it comes to the trial, don't try to end it. Every trial has its built-in time scale. It will end. When you're in it, you'll think it, it'll never end. This is going to go on forever. It will end. And then when it's over, it's over. You think, oh, if I knew it was going to end today, I would have stopped grumbling this morning. But then it's over, and you find yourself grumbling, and the angels blush, and you fail the test. And God says, well, I have to give you another one. You keep taking the O-levels till you pass. How do you dignify a trial? You welcome it. You don't panic. See it as a compliment from God. Don't try to end it. Finally, don't grumble. Don't murmur. Don't complain. I think if you knew how much God hates grumbling, you'd stop it. He doesn't like it. This may shock you, but did you know, according to 1 Corinthians 10, God puts sexual immorality and grumbling on the same level. You surely not, I tell you. Well, I know why you would raise your eyebrow, because sexual immorality brings disgrace upon God's name. But in his eyes, he hates grumbling just as much. So if you've been grumbling up to now, say, God, I'm sorry, confess it, accept your forgiveness, and stop it. And make a commitment from this day. I'm going to count it pure joy. All right. Let me try to get to these three other levels of joy before I turn things over to Michael. First level, joy by faith. Second level, joy by the immediate witness of the Holy Spirit. That's the second level of joy. By immediate witness, I'm talking about when the Holy Spirit comes immediately and directly into your heart, you could call it, I say this guardedly, but I mean it, you could call it a brain bypass operation. Because if it comes through your brain, your mind, you will reason it. And there's a place for that. Uh, one way you come to assurance of salvation is uh, the Puritans call it the reflex act. They call it the indirect act. In fact, according to William Perkins, that was the highest form of assurance. Uh, they used what they called a practical syllogism. It was Aristotelian-type reasoning. Major premise, minor premise, conclusion. Major premise, all who trust Jesus Christ's death on the cross are saved. Minor premise. But I believe in Jesus Christ. 
Conclusion, you're saved. And that's a way to come to assurance of salvation. Nothing wrong with that at all. We all do it. That's how you know you're a Christian. You've trusted Jesus. You know you have. That's the reflex act. Nothing wrong with it. But there is a higher level of assurance. And that is the immediate and direct witness of the Holy Spirit. When it bypasses your mind, and you just, whoo, I'm saved. I am going to heaven. And God is so real. Wonderful thing. Dr. Lloyd-Jones called it the sealing of the Spirit. And so, it's a wonderful thing to know by the immediate and direct witness of the Holy Spirit, you are saved. So, I'd like to have that. Well, Dr. Lloyd-Jones would say, sue him for the promise. It's yours. You should have it. And say, I want this more than anything in the world. There comes a time, I think, every Christian needs to believe for himself without having to have others supporting you all the time. Where you get encouragement. Am I saved? Am I not? Well, here's how you know you're saved. You go through it and you think, good. And you're encouraged all over again. Abraham went through that. Uh, you have several times, by the way, in the book of Genesis, where Abraham got reassured by the same old promise. Once count the stars, another time count the sand of the sea. Can't count that either. And Abraham would think, oh, good. It's, it's really going to happen. So one day God swore an oath to Abraham. After that, he was set for life. Never doubting after that. And that's what this immediate and direct witness of the Spirit is. And God promises it. It's part of your inheritance. Don't come short of this. We're talking about levels of joy. First level, joy by faith. Second level, joy by the immediate witness of the Holy Spirit. There's a third level. This is joy by knowing that you please God. It is the highest level of joy this side of heaven. There's nothing more thrilling, more satisfying, more blessed than knowing you please God. It is incalculable. Because when I know that I please him, I can endure anything. Because his opinion is all that matters. Jesus, on one occasion, revealed the reason the Jews didn't accept him as Messiah. I get questions all the time. Why did the Jews miss Jesus? I will see next uh, Wednesday David Rosen. David Rosen is a top rabbi of Israel. He's been given a papal knighthood by Pope Benedict. He was knighted by the Queen a year ago. He's now Sir David Rosen. He and I have written a book together. And uh, we might write another one. I'll see him next week. Pray for him every day. That God will open his eyes. I don't know that I've got the guts to tell him I know why he hasn't seen Messiah. But Jesus gave the reason. It's in John 5, 44. Jesus said to the Pharisees, How can you believe who receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that comes from God only? In other words, how can you? You can't. You can't. The idea of seeking, pursuing the honor that comes only from God was not on their radar screen. They couldn't conceive of God giving his own praise. They couldn't even think about it. The only way they knew how to think was by consensus. What do people think? 
Why they contributed. They, they would get a band to play. That's why if they fasted, they, they would look like they were fasting. It would show they were pious. Matthew 23, verse 5. Everything they do is for men to see. And uh, it's when you're motivated by what people think. Oh, if I'm seen with that person, whew, what will people think of me? I, Peter had a bit of that. You know, he was sitting with the Gentiles, doing fine, until some people came from Jerusalem, and he saw them. He said, oh, excuse me, I've got uh, an appointment to keep. And Paul knew exactly what he says, you, you hypocrite. He, he claimed him right in front of everybody. You're, you, you don't want anybody seeing you sit with Gentiles. Shame on you, Peter. And are you like that? You don't want to be seen going to a particular church. Well, they, oh, you go to that church? Hmm. You know, the biggest decision I had to make at Westminster Chapel, one of them was whether to endorse uh, the Toronto Blessing. Because I knew exactly what it would cost me and, and did it ever. I mean, I, I have to forego invitations all over the world to this very day. They're, they're getting ready to call me. Oh, oh. He endorsed Toronto. Oh, he did. Oh, dear. Well, we can't have him then. Uh, I live with that. I'm okay about it, by the way. But the point is, you don't want to do anything that's caused people to look down on you. Don't endorse the Rodney Howard Browns of this world. Whatever you do, don't be seen with Michael Eaton. I mean, that will really cut you off. You are lost for any good prestige. Well, that was the way the Jews were. Sadducees, the Pharisees, they, you know, were looking over each other's shoulder. And Jesus says, how can you believe? How can you? Because we just seek the honor one of another. The idea of having the honor that comes from God only didn't cross their minds. And what Jesus is saying here, that there is an honor, there is a praise that comes from God. Find out what that will be like. What would it be like when God himself looks down at you? And this is not heaven. This is here below. He says, good. I'm proud of you. It is the most wonderful thing in the world. Probably won't be able to tell anybody. They wouldn't understand it. In fact, it's not to be told. Because it is so fulfilling and complete in itself, you don't need to tell everybody, hey, I, I found out I pleased God. Now you blew it when you do that. But the satisfaction of having the honor that comes right from him. That way, what people think, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because you've got his approval. And so, it's the most wonderful thing in the whole world. You know, he cares. A number of years ago, there was a child prodigy, the pianist, the next Van Cliburn, the next Arthur Rubinstein, young kid, and he was going to give his debut at Royal Festival Hall. And Tickets were sold out in 24 hours because the word is out about this kid. And there was standing room only. And uh, he gave the concert. And it was all they thought it would be. They cheered, they stomped, they threw programs in the air. But the kid would not come out for a bow. They wanted an encore. The station manager said, go out and take a bow. The people are on their feet. And the kid says, no, I'm not going. He says, but, but, but you've got to. We've never seen such an acclamation. You've got to go out, take a bow anyway. If you don't want to play enough, no, I'm not going. He says, why? The kid says, they're not all standing. He says, what do you mean? Look through the curtain. You see the man up on the Second balcony, third from the end. See that man? 
the station manager said, who cares about that old man? Everybody else. The kid said, you don't understand. That man is my teacher. When he stands, then I'll go out and take a bow. When they were stoning Stephen, Stephen was able to endure the whole thing. He says, I see Jesus. He's standing. This one put he stood to welcome the first martyr home. But to see him standing. The most wonderful thing in the world. And I close with this, the fourth level of joy. Is when we are in heaven. And we hear from the lips of Jesus himself. Good. I reckon we'll have to have glorified bodies to contain it. What will it be like? Until that day, it's joy by faith. Were God to increase it with the immediate witness, may it come. May you receive the praise that comes from him alone. May it happen. But until then, whatever he lets happen, we say it's okay. We welcome it. No grumbling ever again. May we pray. Heavenly Father, Take this word and apply this word by your Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name.